The accomplishment is directly proportional to the challenge. And so the more time you put into achieving your goal, the more valuable that goal becomes. Anyone that lives in the country that's got a ranch quickly realizes life begets death, begets life, begets death. This is a continuum that we're all part of, but in the city, you can remove yourself from that. You go pay for those arrows and pay for your bow and divide the dollars per pound that you spent on it. It's not about the meat. Ultimately, if you just follow the money, you find the truth. It's just who's marketing to us better at a given time on what's the right thing to do. It's not about the, the kill. It really isn't. It's about the experience, the journey along the way. Hey, everyone. I'm Jim Shockey, and you're listening to The Wild Initiative. Put down your latte and pull on your boots. There's a lot of people that can pull the trigger on an animal, but they don't know what to do with it after. If you would have told me that a stupid turkey was going to make me get that excited, I would have told you you were crazy. It's just a skill that you have to perfect over a lot of years. Hunting is a tribal activity. We've lost the tribe. We can't even hunt together anymore. Well, the people that are anti-hunting are usually pro-abortion. So kill the people, save the animals. I just remember riding my horse back to camp with the northern lights and the moose behind me, and I'm like, this is why I've done this. This is as cool as an experience as I will get. Hi, this is Jim Shockey. This is Sam Sohol, the public land bus guy. Hi, I'm Kimmy Greentree. Hi, this is South Cox with the Western Bowhunter Podcast. Hey, this is Ben Dedamonte, a.k.a. Shed Crazy. You're listening to The Wild Initiative. Hey y'all, welcome to another episode of The Wild Initiative, brought to you as part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. All right, y'all. So getting on to today's episode, I'm super excited to have him back, y'all. I I talked with Jim uh, back in 2017, right before my very first elk hunt. So uh, glad to have you back, Jim. Thank you so much for joining me. That's my pleasure. I was trying to recall what we talked about almost four years ago now. So I want to make sure I don't uh, say something different than I did the first time. <laughs> well, you know, we we change and a lot of different stuff happens. And, you know, uh, we were talking bef- uh, just before the episode and we were kind of talking about uh, we spoke August. So it would have been honestly probably just a few weeks, like uh, three, four weeks before I was getting ready to head out on my very first elk hunt. And uh, here we are just speaking finally uh, a couple of months after I finally take my first elk. So it just seemed very apropos to, to have you on at this time. That's uh, a lot of seasons. Sounds like you're doing a few miles and, uh, and didn't find an elk. Uh, wel- welcome to the hunting fraternity. It's <laughs> the, the kill part is a tiny little piece of it. You know, as you say, it took you that long to get your elk. But all the hunts you were on, they were successful because you were in the outdoors trying. And that's really what hunting's all about anyway. Oh, yeah. I, uh, after, uh, I want to say two years ago, after, after my hunt two years ago, I recorded a, a solo episode, just kind of recapping what I, what I had. And I called it uh, 
le- something along the lines of lessons learned from a successfully unsuccessful elk hunt. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah that, that, there's a lot of, a lot of people gauge the success on whether they got the animal they're after. And I think a lot of people looking on hunting, you know, they think that that's what hunting is all about, but it's, it's not as, as you've learned. I'm sure I didn't <laughs> listen to that podcast, but I'm sure you, you learned a lot and uh, enjoyed the time in the wildlands and, and, you know, you're, you're a better person for it and a better hunter for it. Obviously I, I see in the background, you're successful here. Like you said, <laughs> Yep. It's, uh, it, it, it's hard. It's, it's not, it's challenging. It's not what non-hunters think it is that we just go out and blast something and, and come back, you know, with a head. I mean, it's, that's just not what hunting's all about. It's, uh, it, it kind of blows me away, you know, thinking it, it seems like it hasn't been that long, but then it also kind of seems like a lifetime ago, just from how much has changed and how much I've learned since then. And, you know, it, t- it took me four year or four seasons to, to get my elk. Um, you know, I've had some other successes along the way, you know, deer and javelina and some turkey and a few, a few different things. But, uh, you know, that elk was always kind of because it was the thing that that captured my imagination and really captured my interest. That's always been been that pinnacle for me. And now I'm just I'm excited to, to keep taking that knowledge and and moving along with it. Yeah, I mean, you, you, it's, you know, hunting, you get incrementally better every single time you go out. The, the more time in the field, it, you know, it, it's, it's a classic case of put $10,000 towards something and you're, you're going to be good, 10,000 hours. Uh, you know, it, it just takes time. And, uh, you know, now at, at the stage I'm at, you know, I, I don't really care whether I get anything or not. I think... You know, it starts when I was young with, with the, the what I got. You know, that, that I focus on that, the what I got. I had to try and, and get something that I set my goal for. That was, it was the what. And then I, I started challenging myself with, you know, no, no, it was more about the how I got it. You know, so, so now it was muzzleloader archery. I was going to, you know, make it more difficult. It had to be a perfect shot. It had to be within X amount of, you know, the, the, the how became far more important. And, and now, you know, at the stage I'm at it, it's, um, it's more about the why, the why I hunt, you know, so, so the, the, what I get and the, how I do it is not as important for me anymore as, as the why am I doing this. And, and uh, you know, I, I, again, that, that, that took me 50, half a century, 50 years to figure that out from my first deer to now, you know, so, so it's, you used to got a long journey ahead of you, young man, it'll <laughs> better and better. And, and uh, you know, it, that's the beauty of hunting. You, you never know everything about it. You learning constantly, still learn. And, and I mean, what a perfect way to pay respect to the, the what brought us to this day, you know, the hunter, we were all, we're all the product of the greatest hunters that ever existed. That's who survived and they had children. That's us. So it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, I'm glad to, glad to see you're, you you joined in and, and glad to see how many people you're reaching that are new hunters. That's, that's awesome. More, more the better. It's, I, I really love that, that sort of mentality and, and the way, the way you phrased it, it's, it's such a good illustration going from that, the what I got mentality of hunting to the how I got it mentality to the now why I'm getting it mentality. Um, it's, I, I like, I like that, that progress, but um, do you have, uh, what would you say? Maybe, uh, maybe you have like an example or, or a story of a hunt where you weren't say traditionally successful but you still consider to be a, a really successful hunt uh, you know the first time i went after polar bear up in the arctic with the inuit um it was dog sleds that, that was the law and and i went in late february early march which which is you know it's almost 24 hours of darkness up there there's there's a few hours of sort of twilight temperatures we we hit a 
a cold spell. The temperatures went down to uh, my over minus 40 below Fahrenheit and with a wind. So the, it, the ambient temperature was minus 41, 42. Um, but then with the wind, it was over 100 below wind chill. Gosh. If, if anything, tiny little fraction of your face was exposed, it was like somebody was cutting you with a knife. You, you could just feel it. that, you know, just molecules of air getting to your skin, uh, try and get more layering on your face. You know, goggles were all fogged up. You know, any activity that's is kind of normal for us. Um, you know, I don't want to say it, but going to the bathroom, you know, it, it was an ordeal. <laughs> truly, truly an ordeal. Uh, you know, just a, an interesting side to that. We, you know, we, we were living in canvas, a canvas little tent, and we would tear down camp every day and go on the dog sled as far as we could and then set up camp again. And, and you know, so you're, you're in a wall tent, a, a canvas wall tent and those kind of temperatures. And my, uh, the way they built it, it wasn't a big canvas tent either. Probably, I'm going to say it was 10 feet by probably eight feet. Oh, wow. And, and they raise it way up high. You, you, the side walls were only three feet and then the, the peak. So you, if you set up, what, what they did was they, they dug a hole in the ground to make a, a ledge where you, you could put your feet down and, and sit on the ledge. So they dug us or in the snow, they dug a, a little trench and that was four feet at the front of the tent. Um, then they had the six foot long by eight foot wide bench at the back that they covered in muskox hides and caribou hides. And just going right back to what I originally started talking about uh, going to the bathroom, my two Inuit, you know, guides that were along, they didn't go outside to go to the bathroom. They just lifted up the muskox hides and dug a hole right underneath the muskox hides on our sleeping bench. And that's where they went bathroom you know and, and i'm talking number one and number two where is that gross as anybody out but uh you, you know you you just you you start to adapt to whatever the situation is and, and that you know that hunt taught me a whole bunch about my capabilities and and uh i i realized what my motivation my motivation you know there is no limit to desire but desires need and we spent, I think it was day, we saw a polar bear, a male polar bear, um, and I could have shot it, but it wasn't an old past breeding age uh, male polar bear. I didn't want to, didn't want to shoot it. Uh, it wasn't about the kill for me. It, you know, it was still about the what back in those days. Uh, a muzzleloader, by the way. Um, so I turned it down, and, and we went 23 days on the ice, basically dying. Every day, a little bit of you dies every day in that kind of temperatures. You, you, if you stayed out there for six months, living like we were living without um, luxuries, you know, comforts, you're, you're dying slowly but surely, and you wouldn't last six months out there. There's no way. Um, the dogs were running down hard. I mean, it was it was a hunt that um, was a dismal failure in terms of whether we got an animal because we didn't, you know, we finally turned tail and got off the ice, took the dog sleds back, you know, into the village and, and had a real meal for the first time uh, in 23 days and, 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 you know, frostbitten, you know, hurting. And uh, you know, there, there, there's a hunt that was, as I said, a dismal failure in terms of getting an animal, but, but a, a huge success. In, in the um, realization of, of what I was capable of personally, in the, the beauty of that harsh wilderness, you know, the, the pure starkness of, of that land, you know, uh, it, is, it, it is a humbling experience that, you know, when you factor in everything that all together, it was a huge success as a hunt. I mean, that, that's, it's not about the, the kill. It really isn't. It, it's about the experience, the journey along the way, and, and uh, what you take away from it in the end as a human being, not necessarily as a hunter. So, so that, to me, was one of the, the greatest hunts I've ever been on, and we, we didn't get anything, nothing. I wish, you know, I wish 
We would have. We would have been eating like kings. Polar bear, by the way, is is uh, excellent eating. Um, it's a staple up there with the Inuit. So it would have been nice to get something that we could have fresh meat, but uh, it, it wasn't to be. And I've never regretted those 23 days. Now, the next time I went back, I'd been beat up so bad the first time that <laughs> I was uh, filled with trepidation the next time I went back, just going, my goodness, I'm going to have to go back into this you know, storm, this, this blizzard. And, and try and survive it. But, but I, you know, was a little smarter. I went later in uh, May. So temperatures were much nicer. <laughs> the coldest it got was about 19 below. So that, that was balmy compared to what we were, you know, 40 below is a big difference from 20 below. Uh, and then we had warm days where it was actually melting. And there was sunlight. So, so uh, yeah, that, that, was, that was one of the most successful, unsuccessful hunts that I've ever been on. I think one of the interesting things about those, you know, quote unquote, unsuccessful hunts is, uh, is I feel like you remember more of the hunt itself sometimes so often, and it's not always the case, but so often on a successful hunt, unless there was some real extreme hardship, the, the experience of the hunt can often be overshadowed by the kill and the pack out versus, those unsuccessful hunts, you really remember so much of every detail of what you did during those days and uh, what you went through in the land and the wildlife you saw and all of that. I think uh, because there's, because you don't have that kind of moment of the kill that can often overshadow a lot of other things during the hunt. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, also, you know, the, the accomplishment is directly proportional to the challenge. And so the more time you put into the, you know, to achieving your goal, the, the more valuable that goal becomes. So, you know, it, it all, it all, uh, it all adds up. I mean, it, it's a summation of all your experiences on those, you know, unsuccessful trips that make that out behind you such an important part of, of, who you are as a hunter. If you would have gone out the first day and it walked up and you got it, I mean, eh, it, 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 you know, my age now, I'll take those kind of hunts because I've been on, <laughs> you know, I, I've learned enough. I'm good. You know, I'm good on it. So I'm happy if there's, it is uh, the culmination of the hunt, getting the animals on the first day. It doesn't bother me a bit anymore. But um, like I say, the more time you put into it, the more it means when you actually succeed and get that animal, achieve your goal you know, the accomplishment is greater. So, so I think that's part of it is, is, you know, you, you start lining up the memories and when they're you know big as a mountain, it, it's again, a greater accomplishment when you're standing on top of that mountain and you have all those memories, you know, that, that you're standing on that you're, I don't know if that's a, a great analogy because you're not really standing, you're holding them. They're yours. You know, they're in here. Nobody can ever take those away from you. So, you know, and I, you know, even on a hunt, the perfect hunt for me actually is getting the animal on the last day, last minute of the hunt, because then you had the entire time to, you know, you felt all that, but you still got the animal you're after. You know, that's a happy ending on a, on a hunt, really. But, um, you know, during the hunt, you can have ups and downs. I, I, you know, it's hope and despair. You, you You vacillate wildly between great hope and despair and hope and despair and hope and despair that's during a hunt. But then there's during your career after that elk for four years that it took you to get it or three years, you know, you had the hope and despair for year after year after year. I mean, that, that's, that builds character. That, that's, uh, that's what makes hunters who we are self-sufficient. You know, we're, we're, uh, maybe self-centered in some ways because, because of the amount of time that we have to, to put towards achieving a goal that's <laughs> a goal. But, you know, it's, it's for the family ultimately, you know, and, and for the tribe historically. And that's, you know, there's nothing more important than, than those two things. You know, it's funny. You kind of mentioned your, you know, your ideal hunt is the, is that hunt where it's the last moment of the last day. You've effectively, you know, you've, you've squeezed every possible you know, ounce of adventure out of that hunt that you can. 
And uh, then, you know, you uh, then you take that animal and you take it home. And, um, you know, the the three animals you can see behind me, the, the deer, the javelina and the and the elk, every each and every one of those was uh, the very last day, the very last trip out. The deer, as a matter of fact, was literally in probably the last 15, 20 minutes of shooting light. And it was it was either going to happen or or I was going home empty handed. And so it's just it's funny you kind of bring that bring that up because all three of these that you can see behind me are were that kind of hard hunt. Uh, again, you know, kind of those moments where you're like, I'm not going to get any. I'm not going to see anything. I'm not going to get anything. I'm I'm eating another bowl of tag soup or whatever you want to say, but uh, you end up finally pulling it together at the last minute. You know, and, and that to me, that's what a true hunter's, you know, feels and, and understands. And, you know, there, there's a spirituality that's associated with that type of a hunt. Uh, you know, it's an ancestral, ancestral spirit that, that we can touch when you're, there day after day trying to get that animal and then get it you know it, it and and here's just a little aside to that my father and and my uncles um they were meat hunters so you know nowadays meat people you know go meat and eat meat and wild game they kill it and eat it and it's about meat but hunting actually isn't about that you know my my dad and and his brothers they were true meat hunters. You know, it was about eating meat. And if they could be done on the first minute of opening day of the season, that was the greatest hunt on the planet for them because it's about meat. You know, it's about how many dollars per pound did it cost for that meat? How many hours per pound did it take to get that meat? You know, and there's a diminishing return. If, you're, if it takes a week to get your deer and you end up with, you know, 80 pounds of meat from it, yeah, that wasn't a good deal for those guys. You know, they, they were better off working, you know, working some extra hours down at the mechanic shop and, and uh, buying some meat, which we never did anyway, because they were pretty successful at getting their deer on the first day and, and moose. But um, we have to be careful that, you know, the meat is important, but it's not why we hunt. The things you're talking about are why true hunters hunt meat is a byproduct of that. You know, the, the sustenance that's, it's an important part, but nowadays we can't, you know, that's not a defensible argument that we're hunting for meat only. It, it won't, it'll never, it'll get you out of a cocktail party argument with somebody who says, Oh, you know, you're a hunter. That's terrible. You say, well, but I, I do it just for the meat and Oh, you're okay. But those other guys are bad. You know, the guys that want to spend all week hunting and then get the animal on the last day. And, uh, you know, so so the ancestral soul, we have to we have to always be in touch with that, and and that's beyond just meat. You know, there's a spiritual relationship between hunters and the animals that we go after. You know, there's a stewardship that's our responsibility to look after them. You know, conservation, that's what we do, and and so that that all goes far beyond just looking at those animals as hamburgers running across the field like my dad and my uncles did. And, you know, we have the luxury of doing it this way now. You know, they didn't have the luxury. You know, dad, if we didn't get a moose in the fall, we didn't eat meat. We didn't, you know, we didn't go buy a cow. I didn't even know you could buy a cow <laughs> in high school. You know, it was, it was macaroni if dad didn't get his moose. So, so you know, it, we, we just, we have to be careful nowadays that we're not sliding too far into integrating these animals to the level of just being a hamburger. You know, it's not, they're not, you know, that's, that's a kindred spirit. That's without that animal, we can't be who we are. And like I say, we have the luxury of being in touch with our ancestral soul. And it's very important that we do that. Um, which means spending time in the outdoors, getting that animal on the last day or not getting the animal for three years. That's not a bad thing. You know, that's, that's, that's actually, you know, more tuned in to what hunting's all about than going and getting the animal and butchering it up and eating it the same day. You know, it's, it's, uh, and again, it depends on the motivation, you know, what somebody's motivation is. Well, and I think you're right. It's such a, 
it's it's such a, a I don't want to have this discussion and argument kind of a kind of an answer. It's the it is it's the getting out of the argument at the cocktail party answer. It's like because because what's the first thing anybody I mean anybody that doesn't hunt what's the first thing they ask you the the second they find out you're a hunter is it it's something along the lines of oh, are you a trophy hunter or are you a meat hunter. I mean, every dang time it's, it's almost guaranteed to be the first question you ask. And, and unless you're prepared to be, you know, I always, I always, before I answer, I say, well, how long do you have, (laughs) you know? Well, but that's, that's good. You're actually taking on that challenge of, of educating them as opposed to running away from the, the argument, you know, running away from the conflict. We, we, can't keep running away you know so so what you're doing by you know saying okay i have the time if you have the time let's talk about it you know they 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 invariably unless they're ideologues that have spent a lot of time hating on hunters and you know animal rightists they're most people are pretty open-minded when it comes to the hunting if you'll sit there and talk to them about conservation and the efforts that hunters make and how, you know, we're looking for the oldest animals beyond breeding age and how all wild animal populations are managed nowadays around the world and have to be. And if we don't, if we manage them by social um, moors, uh, you know, the urban view of wildlife, you know, socially acceptable to, to do this or do that. And that's what determines as opposed to biology, how you manage the wildlife. I mean, it's, it's doomed to have unintended consequences. You know, you ban grizzly bear hunting because it's socially unacceptable, not because there's not enough grizzly bears. There's plenty of grizzly bears. You ban it because the urban voters say we don't want it. Well, that's great. But what about all the elk and the moose and the caribou that are now, you know, in dire straits because there's too many grizzly bears killing their, their fawns and their calves in the spring? You know, you can't manage that way. So, so you have to, you have to take, it's not a fight. It, it's a, you have to educate. It's every hunter's responsibility at that cocktail party to stand up and say, no, no, it's not about meat. You know, I realize that's what you, know, you think as a, here at this cocktail party, that's what you've read in the popular press, but, you know, and, and trophy hunting is bad, but let's discuss that because, Really, if it's about me, by the time we, you know, you go pay for those arrows and pay for your bow and pay for the gas and how many years, three years to get that elk and divide the dollars per pound that you spent on it. It's not about the meat. (laughs) No one, it's not efficient. And we've known that. That's why we turned agrarian 10,000 years ago. You You know, we were always before that hunter gatherers, but then we figured out, eh, you know, that's a tough way to make a living. It's easier to sit here sedentary and, and grow plants and, and then domesticate aurochs and, and turn them into cows eventually. You know, so, so yeah, we, we all have a responsibility to, uh, to face that challenge and to educate people that are not hunters and, and explain to them what the reality is. You know, it's not so simple as trophy versus meat hunter. You know, you can't tell me you're a meat hunter if you're going down to Mexico to hunt coos deer. You know, know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And that's why I say it's not defensible in the long run. Someone's going to call us out on that eventually. And, uh, you know, then what do you say? You've already given the high ground up. You have to, you have to take the time and and educate people about what hunting is all about. If you're a hunter, that, that comes along with being a hunter. That's your responsibility. Yeah. And I think that's, that's key right there. Is it, it is a responsibility. It is something that comes with the territory. If you're not prepared to take the time and, you know, maybe this is me getting a little up on a high horse, but if you're not prepared to take the time to defend hunting, um, maybe you shouldn't be presenting yourself as a hunter. (laughs) Um, I mean, and you know, there I'm I'm not gonna say like somebody 
somebody shouldn't have to or should have to be fully educated on on absolutely everything to do with conservation and this and that and the other uh, before they ever go, you know, pick up a rifle and go on their first hunt. I'm not saying that, but if you're somebody that consistently identifies and presents yourself as as being a hunter, if this is part of your lifestyle and what you do, you need to be prepared and and it's your responsibility to be educated about this. And it goes back to what you were saying. And it's that, that why going from the, what I got to why I'm, why I'm getting it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, that's uh, actually a symbol of our times right now. You know, it's not the same when I came up in the hunting world in the sixties, I mean, 1960s, 1970s, you know, things have changed. Things have changed. And, and so nowadays, you know, we have to shoulder more of that responsibility. We really do. And, I, and I, yes, you don't have to be totally conversant and, and you know, know, you know, how to deflect the, the attacks or you don't need to do that at, at, when you're just starting a something. But, but you have to learn. You have to make an effort to learn, I think. And, and, and I don't know how you mandate that how, you know, make it part of the hunter education courses. I think they are nowadays. Um, there's a great book, the honorable hunter uh, training instructor training manual um, by Michael Sabbath. Actually, you know what? I happen to have it right here. Huh. You know, and that book, everybody that's thinking about being a hunter, that's a new hunter should, you know, take the time to read that book. You know, I, I, hunters and, and hunting is, is going to take greater responsibility than it did in the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, early 2000s. So nowadays, especially, you know, your generation, you're going to have to, you know, it's, it's just going to be part of it. You're going to have to learn what it, and you already know it, but anybody thinking about getting into hunting needs to understand the, um, the importance of of and the re- responsibilities that you have as a hunter and it unfortunate, but, it, but that's the way it's going to be. I mean, I have, I, I have my theories, you know, and a lot of it has to do with media and, and the, the visibility of things these days and, and how an image or a video or, or information can, you know, make it uh, from here to Kyrgyzstan and, and back again in, in under a minute. Um, but what what do you see as some of the uh, maybe some of the reason why they, it almost feels like there's such a greater responsibility these days to be educated and and be such a an ambassador for hunting? What do you what do you th- what do you see as as having changed? Well, uh, I mean, you know, media is is what's changed. Back in the day. You, you could be in your bubble, whatever your bubble happened to be. The city people didn't really understand what was going on in the country. The country people didn't really care about what's going on in the city. You know, you read hunting magazines, or if you're in the city, you read GQ magazine. You know, nobody, they, never the twain shall meet. Then television started blurring the lines. You know, we had the hunting shows, Kurt Gowdy's American Sportsman back in the early 60s. Um, Kennedy got assassinated and that was the end of the hunting shows. You never saw them anymore until we started getting cable vision or, you know, cable networks. And then we, you know, started getting hunting channels again. This would be back in the early nineties, you know? So, so from that point, television kind of, well, television took over for magazines. Then now social media is taking over for television. You know, it's streaming videos, although it's just television in a, in a different format, easily accept or easily accessible. And instead of, you know, uh, what do we have a thousand cable channels? There's probably 500,000, you know, network streaming video. You're, you're, this is a network. This is a TV show. This is information that's being, you know, so people are getting divided, 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 um, or their attentions are being divided. So that's good as long as we're all giving the same message down, you know, a, a very similar educated, I, I guess, 
message to the, to the non-hunters. Unfortunately, you know, social media is a double-edged sword. If one of us makes one mistake out of those 500,000 channels that are out there, that's the one that hits the news and it goes viral. And like you say, it goes to Kyrgyzstan, goes to, you know, to Tajikistan, goes to Azerbaijan, and then it's back. And that's in two minutes, you know, and then it hits New York city and Los Angeles and boom, you know, one person out of 500,000 did something that basically ends up vilifying and marginalizing all other hunters. And I think that's, that's why our, each and every one of us has a responsibility in the, in the past. You know, my dad and my uncles could do something that, you know, people would frown upon in the city and nobody would ever know about it. Nobody really cared about it. It just was what it was. Um, nowadays, everybody cares about everything and everybody can hear about everything. And if it's something that, that triggers, you know, that being offended uh, reaction, it goes viral. And, and, so that's why each and every one of us nowadays is kind of under a microscope. And, and you know, there's more people in the cities, you know, urban centers. And I'm not, I'm not throwing all of those people in the cities under the bus. There's a lot of people that are, are outdoorsmen that have to live in a city because of their jobs. Uh, you lived in Los Angeles or wherever it was. So, you know, that just is the way it is. Nothing wrong with those people. Nothing wrong with the people that have their opinions the other way. The, the problem is there's the majority live in the, urban centers and their information is kind of skewed. You know, the popular press isn't going to tell the story the way it actually is. You know, good news sells for a dollar, news sells for $2. So what do you think? Those are, those are businesses. You think they're going to say something good about hunting? No, why would they? they get, they're going to make a dollar. If they say something bad about hunting, they're going to make $2. And, and uh, you know, that, again, that's why each and every one of us now has a greater responsibility than we ever did because each and every one of us can be world, world news for our 15 minutes. We can be world news. Any one of us just, we just do something dumb and, and post it, put it on camera. Uh, it goes viral and, and that paints all of us. So yeah, we, we all have a responsibility. And I think that the reason is because of the social media, like you say, Kyrgyzstan and back in one minute. Kyrgyzstan. I didn't even know where Kyrgyzstan was when I was a kid. You know, now, <laughs> you know, social, I, I know everything in, in, you know, or as much as I need to for bad news. I was going to say, you know, about uh, that one thing that that random shopkeeper did on the weekend in Kyrgyzstan at this point, you know, more, more detail about random people's lives than ever needed. And the wild yeah. thing is <laughs> if it's bad and if it's bad, the world knows about it. Oh yeah. And the, the wild thing is, is, and I think why, why we have to be so careful um, is that it doesn't even have to be necessarily something stupid or wrong. It, so often it can be stuff that just is not necessarily wrong or stupid, but can be misconstrued without all the information or the story or, um, I was just thinking like, Oh, kind of a wild thing. Uh, down in Texas, I was, I was hunting a friend's ranch, uh, for an event. And, uh, it was like a, a new hunters training event, which actually is a fantastic program. They talk a lot about, uh, kind of what we're touching on here, but, uh, uh, I was down at this ranch and because a lot of these exotics are used to being in very specific climates when they come to a place like Texas, that doesn't have that, generally have those extreme weather variations those animals are a lot of the time are pregnant whole season like they're they're dropping babies and have you know pregnant again 10 minutes later and so a lot so when you're hunting at this event we were hunting does we were hunting ewes uh we were hunting female animals well we went and harvested and some of those animals were pregnant and it was for a lot of the people at the event, that was kind of a shocking thing, but you know, could you imagine if, if I went and posted like it, you know, it's a normal thing. It's not a, not, it's not an unethical thing. These are, are not animals that are in danger. You know, they're not endangered species. We are legal. We are that they're ethical, quick kills, 
but people have a sensitivity to something like that. Could you imagine if I had showed a video of me processing out this animal, quartering it in the field and pulling out a, a, a baby deer or a, you know, a baby sheep or something that would, can you, I mean, <laughs> what? Yeah. I, I think there has to be, uh, you know, that, that, that's just disturbing. And it, it, I think there has to be a, a definite line drawn between, you know, management, biological management of a wildlife population, whatever that population is and, and um, hunting, you know, so that, you know, you're there managing population and, and, and there's absolutely biologists overseeing what you're doing there and saying, yeah, this many of this, this many of this, have, because the carrying capacity of that land, you, you not only destroy the ecosystem, you also in the long run destroy that population of wildlife. So, you know, that, that's, and that, that's, again, it's one of those cases where, you know, people don't want to know the truth because they can't handle the truth. And, and, you know, nature is, is a, nature is a harsh taskmaster. You get too many animals, they all starve to death. So is that better? You know, not really, but, but I, you know, it's not, certainly not a, uh, not a position that you want to be trying to defend because it's indefensible for someone that doesn't hunt. They don't, you know, they wouldn't understand it. And it's, it's because they, they, I feel like so many people are so disconnected these days that they just have a skewed view of the reality. I mean, there's so many of those pages. Uh, there's a few of these, those pages these days that are de- literally dedicated to just showing the reality of wildlife. Bears are not, you know, it's not the, it's not the Bernstein bears. It's, you know, where it's like this nice atomic family unit of, of mama, papa, mama and papa bear with their little baby bears, you know, I mean, it's brutal. They're nature, nature kills nature, you know, animals kill animals. And the, you know, the worst part happens is when they don't kill the animals and they're left to starve and expose, you know, uh, starvation and exposure. And, and I think people are so disconnected from that, that then when they hear about a hunter, you know, killing one animal, you know, they just see it as this hunter is breaking up an animal family. They're, uh, they're cutting short this animal's life. They're doing all of these different things that in reality, it's, it's a, probably a mercy to that animal if it's done ethically and responsibly. Yeah. It, it, it's a, tough call i mean you know bears you brought up they you know i i've seen it a male bear will kill and eat the baby bears you know they don't care if it's their own you know son or daughter you know it's it's infanticide their their competition for uh, the resources and and uh, ultimately that baby's going to grow up and and kill the the father you know it, it's um that's just the harsh reality of, of nature. It's not, it's not, you know, Disney world or Disneyland. And it's uh, unfortunately we've, we've urbanized for the last seven decades or so, you know, we've just been moving to the city from the country. Anyone that lives in the country that's got a ranch, you know, quickly realizes life begets death, begets life, begets death. This is a continuum that we're all part of, but in the city, you can remove yourself from that. You know, what do you mean life begets, death begets, life begets? I, I buy a hamburger or I buy a fancy steak and I go watch a, you know, a grand opening or go to the ballet or, you know, see a play on Broadway. What, what are you talking about? Life begets. No, we just, animals don't need to die. Why should they? So, but if you live in the country in a rural setting, you realize quickly that that's just, you know, there's no escaping it. Not one of us is going to escape it either. Uh, you know, hopefully we're not going to get eaten, but uh, that that comes with being the top of the food chain. So, so it's yeah, it's nature's nature's uh nature's tough. You know, the good news is that we're also tough because we've you know survived in nature. You know that that you know to our credit as human beings, we've we've done well. 
you know, now 7.5 billion of us, we maybe did a little too well. But, <laughs> you know, when, when you think about it, there's 25 billion chickens in the world. They did better than us. You know, there's 7 billion head of cattle. They did about as good as us. 7 billion goats, 7 billion or 6 billion sheep. They did pretty well. You know, so we're not the only successful species on this in this world. You know, all those animals did very well. Horses, three million of them. You know, now we don't have hundreds of millions of bison in the world. You know, arguably billions back in the day in the ice age. So, you know, it, it, yeah, it's it's just tough. And we we've urbanized, so we've lost touch with with that sort of life begats death. We don't understand that something has to die for us to eat. I mean, right right now today, I, I, I'm not sure how many shrimp, how many fish were killed? You know, how many chickens, how many goats, how many sheep, you know, how many cows? I mean, you're, you're talking in, in the billions to feed 7.5 billion of us. And, and anybody that thinks that, you know, they can wash their hands and say, I'm not part of it, I'm a vegan. Uh, you know, you we're all in this together. And, and stopping hunting isn't going to stop that slaughter of billions of, of lives around the world. But, but try and tell that to somebody who lives in a city. They don't, they don't see that prawn on their plate. You know, you know, the clams and linguine sauce or linguine and clam sauce, they don't see the clams as living beings. No, that's just clams. Well, yeah, but, you know, they were alive and they were killed. So you can have 20 of them on your plate. You know, and that's just you. Everybody in this restaurant's got, you know, spaghetti and meatballs or whatever they're, you know, veal or whatever they're having. So, so it's, we've just lost touch with, with the reality and, and with nature, unfortunately. You know, it, it brings up actually something we talked about on the, uh, as you're saying this, it, a quote from that first podcast we did together came to me. And uh, I remember you saying, you know, we were discussing that even these, you know, vegans, they're having to destroy how many acres of, of, of land for wildlife in order to plant those fields of soy and, and tofu and, uh, and all of that. Um, and uh, I, 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 the quote was something along the lines of those fields of tofu killed just as much wildlife as, as hunters. Um, and it's, it's well, you know, you don't think about that. They like to think, okay, they're, they're saving the animals yet. Every their entire lifestyle is dependent on destroying those animals' habitat. You, you take away an animal's home, it dies. It's gone. That that habitat is gone. I mean, that's the beauty of hunting. It gives value to the wildlife, more value to the wildlife than an acre of, of soybeans. So you buy back an acre of land for wildlife. That's what hunters do. And and you know, they don't but like I say, when you're removed from that, it, it's uh, counterintuitive. They don't say, well, you're killing the animal. How can that help? You're doing it for your, just for your self-edification. Well, yeah, no, no, actually, you know, the question should be to those people, why don't you hunt? Not why do we hunt? Why don't you hunt? Because if you did, we would have more wildlife habitat. We'd have more wildlife. You know, another, another you know, biofuels. You know, I was on the Sesi Islands in, in uh, Uganda and beautiful jungle habitat, wildlife for Sitatunga, Sesi Island, Sitatunga, and all kinds of smaller wildlife species. And all that land has been, the forests have been raised and they, they're growing palms because palms grow quickly and they're, you know, they can use those for biofuels. So the wildlife has gone because we're being more environmentally responsible. Really? You know, it's just, like I say, there's unintended consequences. What's the cost of doing some of the things we're doing, of, of being a vegan? What's the cost? You know, if you truly admit what the cost is, you're responsible for those, those wildlife. Well, you didn't conserve the wildlife. You killed them off. You're not, you're not preserving or conserving wildlife by being a vegan. You're just 
going like this for the responsibility for the demise of the wildlife. That's not me. Well, yeah, it is you. You know, when you drive a car, that takes paved roads. That was all wildlife habitat. You know, and, and they have to shave down the sides of the road so there's nothing can live on there either. You know, and that's you just as much as me. You know, we're all responsible. We, we can't go like this anymore. Every one of us is responsible for the situation we're in in this world. 7.5 billion of us. You know, it's not anybody's fault. There's just a lot of us here on this planet. I think so much of the problem is no one wants to look deeper at their lifestyle, uh, whatever it is. They want to they take a look at the, kind of the immediate effects, you know, like, okay, this is, this is the effect, the one step away. You know, they don't want to look six or seven steps back, six or seven points back into what their lifestyle or their actions or whatever it is, is actually costing, whether that's like you said, biofuels. Oh, well, we're not, we're not using this. We're using biofuels. So therefore we're being environmentally sound. Um, Or like even things like, like wind, wind power, you know, okay. Yeah, this is great. We're not using oil where the wind is powering everything. Well, yeah, but do you know how much oil it takes to transport just one of those turbine blades you know, when they have, uh, do you know how much oil it takes to like have a dude in a helicopter sitting there spraying those things down to de-ice them so they can work again? Like uh, people want to be lazy and not actually in uh, examine their, uh, what they're doing. And, and they, they want that easy win. they want to pat themselves on the back and go on with an easy life, not actually take the time to really examine examine their actions, I guess. Yeah. And, and that's human nature. You know, wel- welcome to human beings. That, that's, that's what we do. You know, if there's an easy way, why not take that? You know, it's, it's a lot of work to sort out a, a solution to the fossil fuels. You know, how do you, how do you give energy to X amount of people? I mean, and, and I think, Ultimately, if you just follow the money, you, you'll, you, you find the truth. You know, fossil fuels, who's making money on them? Renewable energy sources, who's making the money on those? And they don't, it's just who's marketing to us better at a given time on what's the right thing to do. I mean, I, I'm old enough to remember, you know, butter was the only way to go. Then they came up with margarine. That's the only way to go. Then the margarine butter manufacturers got together and they marketed against margarine. So now suddenly margarine is a bad thing to to eat. And then margarine manufacturers got together. And I mean, it's just, I've just, I'm just old enough to have heard these stories over and over and over. And you, you you take it with a grain of salt, you know, and I know that's, I'm, it's sacrilegious to say that, that the renewable energy resources are, are, uh, you know, potentially more costly to the environment if you really look at the footprint. Um, and then maybe not. I don't know. It, it, who knows what the truth is. Nowadays, frankly, I I'm, I'm take everything I hear on the media with a grain of salt. <laughs> so, you know, we have all these people with this disconnect from, from the wild uh, that don't really want to examine things and you know, we can sit down as, as individuals, like we said, and we can sit down and have those conversations with them. And, and that is going to make a huge difference. But I mean, do you see there being anything else we can do? Is there, I don't know, is there some sort of solution? Because, you know, one-on-one conversations are great, but you know, there's only so many people uh, that can do that. And, and let's face it, you know, even if every, you know, hunters are what, uh, three, three to 5% of the population, you know, even if everyone talked to two people, (laughs) we'd still be woefully undermanned to get out this message. So how do we, what's the solution? How do we go about that? Yeah. I mean, you know, we're all capable of talking to more than two people. Now, not all of us should be talking, you know, some of us were better to, you know, keep our, our pie holes <laughs> closed and, and let some of the rest of us do the talking. Um, you know, so guys like Joe Rogan are reaching tens of millions of people you know, with a pro Cam Haynes. 
um, Steve Ranella, you know, Meat Eater. Like these guys reach a lot of people. You know, I, I've got a million followers on social media or 1.1 million. You know, I reach a lot of people and I'm constantly, you know, not every single post because you've you got to stand on that fine point of, you know, education and, and social commentary and activism and you know, exposing injustice and humor and, you know, positively, you're standing on that point. So it's hard to constantly be doing that. Nobody wants to be preached at anyway. But, you know, all of us reach more than more than two people nowadays. You know, I don't know how many people follow you on social media or how many people watch this podcast, but you're doing something. Now, mostly we're, you know, we've got the converted in the audience, but there's going to be one or two people. I mean, I had a young lady today on social media um, put a comment, or, you know, that she's not a hunter and some of the hunting pictures disturb her, but she doesn't have anything against hunting and she kind of wants to learn what it's about, doesn't want to pass judgment. I, I was that made my you know week that that gives me hope for for you know that our messaging is getting out there and getting through to people that aren't just already you know part of the the you know same ideology that we have. You know, we're reaching across those borders and, and they're reaching out to us too. You know, it's it's we're talking to each other, even if it's one person. You know, now I suspect that one person, what's the rule for every one that says something positive, there's a hundred that <laughs> felt the same way, but didn't say anything. Um, you know, so there's probably a hundred like that young lady that are following me. On, and that was on Instagram. And, you know, there's Facebook, which is, you know, I have more followers on that by uh, 50%. So, you know, we're, we're doing what we can. Everybody just has to do their piece and, and, uh, like I say, our, our reach nowadays of social media, it's a double-edged sword because we're also, we're reaching everywhere. But, you know, with a positive message, we don't reach as far, but we are reaching outside of our little world. And, and it's, you know, it's the truth. The truth will ultimately prevail regardless of the marketing and the propaganda, and how much they marginalize us in the popular press. The truth will eventually come out. It, it's, it's the truth. So, you know, just keep telling the truth and, and you'll be part of the solution. Awesome. Well, Jim, if folks wanted to follow along, find you online, uh, where can they, where can they hunt you down? Uh, you know, I, we're on, I, I think I'm on, uh, well, I know I'm on Facebook and Instagram on Twitter. Um, you can certainly watch our television shows. I've got a new one called shock therapy on the outdoor channel all of our old programming is on reruns on the Sportsman's Network um, and My Outdoors app. So, you know, that streams around the world. You can go to our jimshockey.com and see what we're doing with our Hand of Man Museum of Natural History, Cultural Arts and Conservation. You know, I'm, I'm all over the place. You just have to just Google Jim Shockey. You'll, you'll find something. I was going to say, you can put Jim Shockey in just about any, any search bar and, and something will come up for sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, not all positive, but uh, <laughs> we, we do our best and, and I respect other people's opinions. So, you know, the, the smart thing is not to hate other people for their opinions, even if they hate you for yours. And like I say, in the end, the truth will prevail. Well, Jim, I'm really grateful for you uh, taking the time to hop on with me today. It was absolutely fantastic to catch up and uh, uh, talk for a bit about hunting. So thank you very much. Well, it's my pleasure. A little bit, a little serious today, but uh, next time we'll just tell hunting stories. <laughs> there we go. I'm looking forward to it. All right, y'all, that'll do it for this episode of The Wild Initiative. Huge thank you again to Jim for hopping on with me today. I really had an awesome time catching up with him. And it's it just felt like a really good follow-up to that first episode we did. If y'all have not listened to that episode, make sure you check it out. It's episode 31 of the podcast. You can find it at thewildinitiative.com slash 31. Um, it's, you know, it's just kind of a fun juxtaposition to listen to that episode 
right before my very first hunt and then coming to where I'm at today and just the conversations I'm having. And um, again, really appreciative of Jim for hopping on. Make sure you all check out the show notes page at thewildinitiative.com. Get links to everything we talked about in today's episode. But y'all, that'll do it for this week. Looking forward to next time. But until then, I hope this episode inspired you to get involved, get outdoors and plan your initiative for the wild. Thank you for listening to the Wild Initiative. Please take a moment to leave a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher and head on over to thewildinitiative.com to get show notes, check out the blog, gear discounts, other podcasts from the Wild Initiative family, and more. 